For those of y'all who were not here two weeks ago, or I've not had a chance to introduce myself to, my name is Trey Corey. I'm usually over at our Southwood uh, campus, but getting to be over here this summer with you guys. And so it's a joy to be with you guys. If you have your Bibles open to the book of Revelation, we're going to be at the very end of our Bibles this morning. Revelation chapter 20 this morning, beginning in verse 10. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. As you guys are turning there, uh, especially if I've not had a chance to meet you before, let me kind of share a little bit, let you guys get a little sense of who I am. One of the things you guys probably need to know about myself is that I am probably a self proclaimed obsessive compulsive person. All right. I have some issues. I like everything to be in perfect spots, perfect ordered. Everything needs to have a spot in my life. All right. So even in college, my roommates would play jokes on me all the time. All right. They would, it would kind of go like this. They'd walk into my room and they'd move two or three books a few inches and wait to see how quickly I notice and rearrange. All right. And so they do it all the time again, uh, making fun of the fact that I was so detailed, so obsessed with the kind of details and order and different things like that. Also, it wasn't just books for me, it was also deodorant, all right? So I had this incredible fear, kind of still do. Thankfully, I've kind of seemed to have matured at some level out of this, all right? But I, especially through college, I had this incredible fear that I had not put deodorant on, that I'd somehow forgotten in the midst of my getting ready in the morning, all right? And so I would assuredly put deodorant on, but as the morning would go on, I would consistently check, all right? I'd have gotten pretty adept at kind of like a, a scratch on the nose, but kind of a sniff to make sure it was there, all right? And, and I was so obsessed about it and so worried that I had forgotten that I would do it so many times in the morning that I began to be fearful that I was immune to the smell of my own deodorant, all right? Which was the beauty of marriage because there was another person that I could actually ask can you smell my armpit, all right? And she said, you have your deodorant, don't worry, all right? So I've kind of begun to mature out of that, but it's not just books, it's not just deodorant. Even for me, it was even locks on houses, all right? I had this incredible fear that as I left the house each morning that I had not actually locked the door, all right? And so it'd kind of go like this. Two minutes down the road, the fear would really begin to set in and I'd have to turn the car around to go double check that I actually had locked the door, all right? Which in most cases, and in almost every case, I actually had locked the door, all right? So I'd get back in my car, turn around. Two minutes later, I would begin to have the fear that in checking the locked door, that maybe somehow I had unlocked the door, all right? And so I would have to, again, turn around, and I'd be fighting with myself, this is absolutely ridiculous, all right? I'm one of these kind of guys, everything has to be in its perfect spot, everything has to be in order, or I can't seem to focus, can't seem to move on with life, all right? Which is, for me, why losing something is the incredible greatest torment in my life. If I lose something or if something is missing, I cannot focus, I cannot think, I cannot get anything done until that item is located, all right? I'm not like my wife whose keys are missing all the time and I'm always helping her find them, all right? Everything for me is located. Everything for me always has its place and I'm never losing something. But when I do, man, the world just falls apart for me. I cannot focus, all right? Some of you guys this morning took had to get rides here because you don't know where your keys are, all right? You don't even know how you locked your apartment. You don't know how you got here, but you know that your keys aren't with you. Some of you guys declared on Facebook last night that you can't find your iPhone and your whole life is falling apart, right? Some of you guys lose stuff all the time, all right? It doesn't happen for me, all right? I'm just kind of one of these people. I, I obsess and am controlled about every little thing. And so when I do lose something, though, life begins to fall apart and I have to find a new normal, all right? And so how many of you guys have completely lost the TV remote for your TV, right? And so every single time you have to get up and you have to turn it manually and it is like a horror to you, all right? I know, I know you're kind of people, all right? I'm not one of you, all right? But I can understand you, appreciate you, and love you, all right? Now, here's the deal. I want to highlight for you guys something this morning that I think the church has lost. Uh, Something that has gone missing within the life of the church. I want to highlight it for you guys and I want to talk it through. It's a topic that frankly you've probably not heard many sermons on. Probably not heard a sermon in a long time about it. But we're going to talk about 
hell this morning, all right? Happy Father's Day to y'all, all All right? But we're going to go right to the topic of hell this morning in Revelation chapter 20, and here is why, all right? I think the topic of hell has gone missing in the church at large. We rarely talk about it, and ultimately, here's why I want to do it this morning and in this summer series on the attributes of God. I think our understanding of hell is directly related to our understanding of God. Your view of the future really is rooted in and based on your view of God. You tell me who you believe God to be, how you believe him to act, and I can tell you what your view of the future is going to be. How we view the future always is directly related to how we view who God is. So this morning, we're going to look at the biblical testimony, the biblical passages about this topic of hell. And again, it's not just an idea that let's just get fascinated with the future and the finer points of end-time events, but I think it's a great place for us to begin to really wrestle with what do we truly believe God to be like? On the basis of what hell is like, what could God be like? Based on our understanding of what hell looks like, how it functions, who's it's for, then it has a direct implication for us as to what we believe and who we believe God to be. So we're going to take these two topics and really put them together, really the hell and the holiness of God. That's where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to give you guys a quote that I think it's fascinating on this very topic of hell. A guy named David Lodge has said this, speaking of the topic, the doctrine of hell. He said, in, regarding uh, this topic of the church, he said, at some point in the 1960s, hell disappeared. No one could say for certain when this happened. First it was there, then it wasn't. Different people became aware of the disappearance of hell at different times. Some realized that they had been living for years as though hell did not exist, without having consciously registered its disappearance. Others realized that they had been behaving out of habit as though hell were still there, though in fact they had ceased to believe in its existence long ago. On the whole, the disappearance of hell was a great relief, though it brought new problems. David Lodge, speaking of uh, much of church history, looking at what happened in the 60s, that this very topic of hell that had been very much the forefront of preaching through the uh, church in the 20th century absolutely disappeared off the face of the earth in the 60s sometime. Hell, fire, and brimstone that had been very laced in every single preacher's sermon through every Baptist church and every church in the 60s, 50s, 40s, and 30s, all of a sudden, gone. No one was talking about hell anymore. And for many people, it was an incredible relief. I love Lodge's quote for a couple of reasons. One is, I think he hits a nail on the head that for many of us, we're really not sure what we believe about hell. <laughs> is it real? Is it a metaphor? Uh, what is it really like? Will it last forever? Are we conscious? Who is there? What is their experience like if they're there? That's kind of where we're going to go this morning. I also love his quote for another reason, that no matter what you believe about hell, Lodge hits a nail on the head and something he says, no matter what you believe about hell, it's, it's oftenly not correspondent to how you and I live. There's often a great disconnect as to whether we believe in hell or not. And if we do believe in hell or don't believe in hell, there's a great disconnect with how we live. And so what I want to do this morning is unpack those kind of concepts. One, what is hell like? Therefore, by extension, what is God like? And then thirdly, how do we live? That's where we're going to head this morning, right? An incredibly difficult topic. I'll tell you guys, as we jump into this topic, this isn't like going to be like a normal uh, Sunday sermon here in college class, all right? Laced with all kinds of funny little illustrations. Because frankly, as we look at the biblical testimony about hell, it's not funny at all. <laughs> and to illustrate it with some comedy and with some humor, frankly, is, uh, misses the whole point. Because honestly, as we look at the text, as we look at the, the testimony about what hell is going to be like, it is terrifying. There's nothing funny about it. And so it's going to be a little bit of a different talk this morning as we kind of run through. But ultimately, I think where we're going to start is, what is hell like? Where we're going to end really is, based on what hell is like, what is God like? <laughs> Again, these concepts will go hand in hand, left and right, constantly together. What you believe about the future is directly related to who you believe God to be. And what we're going to see through much of church history is as people have messed with a biblical or even a traditional understanding of hell, what we'll see over and over again is it's related to the fact that they've changed a traditional view of who God was. 
how God acted, how God thought, how God felt, the very character of God. They've tweaked with that, which led to a change in their sense of the future end time events. So that's where we're going to head this morning. First thing I want you guys to see as we kind of jump in Revelation chapter 20 is that hell is a just punishment, all right? Hell is a just punishment. Pick up with me, if you will, chapter 20, verse 10. I want you guys to see as we run through this, ultimately, who will experience hell? Chapter 20, verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 10 of chapter 20 unfolds really that the first person that really God might have had in mind for hell and who was going to experience it was the devil and the fallen angels. That ultimately hell was created and designed for the devil and the fallen angels, and so they will be the first inhabitants of it. Revelation 20, they will be the ones thrown into it. But it's not just them. Follow with me, if you will, beginning in verse 11. Notice who else will arrive there. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Same place that the devil and the fallen angels would head to would be the same place that those whose names were not written in the book of life would be thrown into. What is going on in chapter 20, verses 11 to 15? Who are these people? Ultimately, we're going to see two different resurrections and two different judgments of the book of Revelation. This is going to be a brief aside, all right? Kind of provide you guys a little bit of context. Two different groups of people in two different resurrections at two different judgments. If you will, flip back, depending on where you are uh, in your pages, uh, look at verses 4 and 6 of chapter 20. You're going to see the first resurrection as John will detail it. Verse 4, uh, chapter 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Book of Revelation, fascinating. All kinds of imagery going on, all kinds of confusion, all right? Uh, but simply put, in, verse, in chapter 20, you get two different mentions of resurrection. There's a first resurrection, and then there's a second resurrection. And what divides the resurrections is a thousand years in which Christ is reigning on the earth. In the first resurrection, who is resurrected? It seems to be that those who were martyred for the cause of Christ, those whose names were also written in the book of life, those who were believers, who knew Jesus Christ, who had trusted in Jesus Christ in his death, burial, resurrection. They will be resurrected and they will return with Jesus Christ to the earth where they will reign with it for a thousand years. After that resurrection, after those thousand years, comes another resurrection, a second resurrection, in which case people will experience a second death. And what you have happening in Revelation chapter 20 is you have two different groups of people experiencing two different resurrections and arriving at two different judgments, ultimately, all right? Often for, uh, for believers who've trusted in Jesus Christ, we talk about their resurrection being arriving at judgment, a judgment according to deeds, uh, which we refer to as the judgment seat of Christ. In verses 11 and 15, we have a different group of people who I, I would, I'm going to argue to you guys are unbelievers who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. They are resurrected as well to a different judgment known as the great white throne judgment. Also a judgment according to deeds. So it's fascinating that two different judgments of the book of Revelation are judgments according to 
Faith or deeds? Deeds, works. And yet you've heard us say over and over again, you're not judged by your works if you know Jesus Christ. What's going on in the book of Revelation? Ultimately, here's what's going on. Two different groups of people arriving at two different judgments at two different times. The first group are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. They arrive at a judgment known as the judgment seat of Christ in which Jesus evaluates their life. The only reason that they arrived at that judgment, though, is because they had trusted in Jesus Christ. They had faith to arrive at that judgment. And their judgment does not determine heaven and hell. It determines their their crowns, their rewards, and their participation with Christ in that coming kingdom. It does not determine heaven and hell. A second resurrection occurs to a second group of people, those who were not resurrected in the first group, and they are all of those who did not trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. And they're going to be judged by their deeds and the experience that they will have. Therefore, after that judgment, they will be thrown into the lake of fire or hell. Two different judgments, both by deeds, which is fascinating, arriving at two different places. How does one arrive at the great white throne judgment, the second resurrection? Because they have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. And without faith, they arrive at that second judgment. They're not resurrected the first time, right? So two different judgments, two different groups of people, which is why I'm going to submit to you guys, as we look at hell, as John will detail it in verses 11 and 15, we're looking at a group of people who are not resurrected in verses 4 and 6 because their names are not written in the book of life, because they've not trusted in Jesus Christ. Their sins have not been forgiven. They're judged according to their deeds, and then they're thrown in the lake of fire, and they experience hell. Hell is a just punishment for the devil, for fallen angels, and for those that have not trusted in Jesus Christ who have not yet experienced the forgiveness of sins and not yet received the promise of eternal life. That's who's going to experience it. But here's the great question then. Why is it necessary? Why is hell necessary for those that have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? If we have an understanding of who will experience this, then why is it necessary? If hell is, is just punishment, then why is it necessary that those that have not trusted in Jesus Christ would experience it? It's fascinating to look through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 23, we'll talk about the fact that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of the standard that God has in his holiness. And the results of that failure, the results of that transgression is known as sin, is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, will say that the wages of sin is death. The just recompense, what you and I earn for our sin and our transgression against God, is death. It is eternal separation from God himself. And what hell is, is what is everything that we were not designed for. You and I were designed for fellowship and and a walk and an interaction and an understanding of the relationship of walking with God. And what hell is, is the absence of the presence of God. It is everything that we were not designed for, everything we were not designed to experience. Hell is awful. And as we walk through this, we're going to understand that ultimately though, as we look at what hell is, we get a picture too of God who had created hell. And one of the things we begin to see as we walk through this is that it is necessary because ultimately God is holy, he's just, and he's righteous. And human sin brings about divine judgment every single time. Human sin brings about divine judgment. According to the book of Romans, human sin brings about a failure to uphold the standard of God's holiness. And that failure brings about judgment. And therefore, that judgment brings about death, brings about punishment. That ultimately, it is necessary because you and I have fallen short. Paul says it like this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 2 Thessalonians is an incredibly strong passage. 
We don't put this on Hallmark cards. We don't put this on t-shirts, right? This is not a verse that we just memorize and just sing in the kitchen as we're, you know, making breakfast, right? This is not fun stuff, right? Really difficult. Dealing out uh, retribution, paying the penalty of eternal destruction. That's hard language. But what we see in 2 Thessalonians is that human sin has brought about divine judgment and divine judgment results in divine destruction. That when humanity sins, the result is that the anger and the wrath of God is kindled. And when that wrath and that anger is then poured out, it brings about destruction. Destruction. I think the very great difficulty that you and I have today is that we live in a culture, we live in a day and time in which we've really twisted the definition of justice. And we've twisted what we really see punishment to be about. Incredible quote from uh, an Anglican minister in the 19th century. And he says this, that the disbelief in the existence of retributive justice is now so widely spread through nearly all classes of people that it causes even men to look upon God as vindictive, lawless autocrat, and to stigmatize as cruel and heathenish the belief that criminal law is bound to contemplate in punishment other ends beside the improvement of the offender himself and the deterring of others. Me, it's kind of packed full. We kind of break it down a little bit. Ultimately, what he's talking about, that minister is recognizing that in the 19th century and even into our century, I'd argue today, our sense of justice, our sense of punishment, the only kind of good punishment we feel good about is a kind of punishment that doesn't destroy, but that rehabilitates, right? The kind of justice, the kind of punishment, the kind of sentencing that gives people a chance that has an opportunity for growth and for change that doesn't just sentence them and that's it. All right, you and I live in a day and time that, punishment, consequences for consequences' sake, are really hard for us to stomach, really hard for us to deal with. And so even for me, with a three-year-old and a one-year-old right now, in the midst of behaviors that I don't like, 11 hours on a road trip, which I had yesterday, right? Behaviors in the car, that's an experience of hell right there, okay? Uh, But in the midst of those kinds of behaviors, those kinds of moments, how do I punish? How do I lay pressure upon a child to show them that I love them and yet... There are consequences, there's punishments for wrong behavior. Incredibly difficult tension. An incredibly difficult tension that you saw the wrong end of, the wrong balance of, most likely as you grew up, because your fathers were not perfect, your mom was not perfect either. It's interesting, on Father's Day, we're walking through this passage, because I think for every single one of us, we take our own sense of our father, project it onto the heavenly father, with all the baggage our dads had, in the midst of the blessings they had as well. So what our dads were great at, we see easily in the Heavenly Father. And what our dads struggled at, we struggle with even as we look at our Heavenly Father and we project that onto him, the good and the bad. And one of the things I want you guys to see, even as we walk through this morning, is as we look at hell, uh, God is just and he's righteous. But he's also loving. And by and large, what we've done to our picture of God these days is that we've allowed God's love to swallow up his justice and his righteousness in such a way that he's weak. We have a God that's all loving, that's our homeboy, right? Not a God who's other than us, who's distinct from us, and who judges and is righteous and just. And what our understanding of hell does is it reconstructs our picture of who God is and gives us a better understanding of exactly what he's like. Because I think as we begin to look at this issue of justice and punishment of what hell is, the question that it begs itself in is ultimately what kind of God would punish sin this way, right? If hell is just punishment, for the devil, for fallen angels, and for those that will not trust in the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ for eternal sins, if hell will be their experience and it's a just punishment because they've fallen short of the standard of God and the result of it is death, eternal separation from God and brings about a punishment for sin or a transgression against God who is a holy judge. If that's what hell is, then it also provides us a reflection as to who God is. 
What kind of God would punish sin in this kind of way? What kind of God would have a hell that is like this? It's really difficult, right? Really, really difficult to grasp, really, really difficult to deal with when you look at some of these biblical passages and you really ask the question, then what is God like? Not what is God like when I want to think about it, when I want to have a Hallmark card. (laughs) Not what is God like when I want to put him on a t-shirt, but what is God like really when I look at the entirety of the scriptural evidence for who he is and how he acts. Really fascinating, really challenging. I tell you guys, as we look at this topic of hell over and over again and throughout much of church history, we see a movement and a shift of traditional understandings of hell. I don't know how you look at some of these passages and argue that hell is not a punishment, that it is not the outworking of the wrath and the justice of God upon those that have transgressed his commands and his gospel. I don't know how you deal with that. Ultimately, there are many people that will therefore twist and, and reshape their view of some of these passages on hell and on the end times because they cannot have a God that would deal with sin in this kind of way. So for example, I don't know what some of your backgrounds are. I don't know what you guys have read. I'm going to give you guys two examples that are distinctly different pictures of what the future will be like with a very distinctly different picture of who God is behind that picture as well. All right. So first of all, some of you guys may have grown up in a Catholic background that in the end time has a picture of purgatory, right? A, a place where men and women can be purified of their sins. They can be therefore work towards forgiveness. They have an opportunity post-death to see a different experience and avoid hell. Also, and along those lines, kind of a different twist. If you guys have read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, and if you guys have read that book, but Rob Bell will, will paint an incredibly different picture of the future because ultimately he doesn't like the picture that is painted of God in light of this kind of hell, all right? Here's what Rob Bell says in his book, Love Wins. He says this, telling a story in which billions of people spend forever somewhere in the universe trapped in a black hole of endless torment and misery with no way out isn't a very good story. Telling a story about a God, here again, here again is the connection. It's not just about hell, but it's about who we believe God to be. About a God who inflicts unrelenting punishment on people because they didn't do or say or believe the correct things in a brief window of time called life isn't a very good story. In contrast, everybody enjoying God's good world together with no disgrace or shame, justice being served, and all the wrongs being made right is a better story. It is a bigger, more loving, more expansive, more extraordinary, beautiful, and inspiring than any other story about the ultimate course history takes. Ultimately, what Rob Bell believes is that every single individual post-death, if they've not trusted in Jesus Christ, will have an opportunity post-death to choose either God or hell. And then his argument is, in light of that choice, in light of seeing the realities that are in front of you, no one, no one in their right mind chooses hell. No one in their right mind would walk away from God when heaven is sitting there and hell is sitting there. No one does that. So ultimately, Rob Bell has a picture of the future in which no one is experiencing the ramifications and the torment of hell. No one. Because everyone chooses God. The question is, does the biblical account, the biblical story provide us that kind of story? It doesn't. Rob Bell moves beyond the sufficiency of scripture because he wants to write a story that's better in his mind. And here's the deal. I appreciate two things about Rob Bell in the midst of what he's doing in his book, Love Wins. First of all, I love that he wants no one to experience hell. (laughs) Who wants anyone to experience hell? It's awful. Second of all, I think he's doing incredibly disservice that he doesn't recognize. He's playing a PR spokesperson for God. He's trying to do cultural damage control to the perception and the reputation of God because he doesn't like how the biblical story plays in our culture today. And whenever you and I feel like we have to make an apology for how God acts and how the scriptures reveal him to act and what he's going to do in the future, we land in a dangerous, dangerous place. Check this. 
Every single time you and I move and reshape a picture of the future that's contrary to the picture of the future that we get in the scriptures, it's always because we've also reshaped a picture of God that's contrary to what we see in the scriptures. Who you believe God to be is always directly related to what you believe that will happen in the future. Do you believe that God is all loving? Do you believe that he is loving to an extent that his justice and his righteousness is diminished by his love? Then you will have a picture of the future in which there is no hell. There is no justice and punishment that is meted out. Everyone has another opportunity and everyone will eventually choose God. That's the picture Rob Bell has. And frankly, it's a lot easier to swallow, is it not? The question though is, not what's a better story. Not what plays better in our culture. But the question is, what do the scriptures say? And where are the scriptures moving? And what do the scriptures show us as to what the future will look like? And do we believe it? Ultimately, I think what we'll see throughout the passage in Revelation also is not just that hell is just punishment and it gets even harder, but ultimately I think hell is unending torment. It is eternal torment. If you guys are having a hard time hanging with me, it's about to get even harder, all right? Because I want you guys to see the full brunt of the biblical testimony about what hell is like. Because you have to deal with it and you have to wrestle with it because other versions of the future sure, frankly, are a lot easier to swallow, but that's not the version that we get from the scriptures. Here's the version we get from the scriptures. Ultimately, that it is unending. Notice what Mark chapter 9, verses 43 and 44 say, that to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. (laughs) Hell is unending. Unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. It is unending. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 13. If anyone worships the beast, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. That is strong language. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. It's incredibly difficult. If your stomach is not churning, if there's not something welling up in you to go, this is awful and this honestly too feels wrong, then you're probably not totally dialed in. (laughs) Because these passages do completely overturn much of our cultural sensitivities. This is so difficult to swallow. So difficult to swallow. In fact, even moving on, what we'll see too is that it's not just unending, but it's just frankly awful. It's awful. That's why there's not a lot of humor this morning because it is just terrifying when we really look at the biblical testimonies about what's going on. And many will argue this. It may be eternal or not, but many will argue that it's just a metaphor. (laughs) Let's not get too worked up about the fire. Let's not get too worked up about the unquenchable kinds of stuff. This is just a metaphor of something bad. Here's the deal. Typically, we get all kinds of metaphors of what heaven is going to be like, right? Streets of gold. And a metaphor provides us, an, uh, in a sense, an arrow pointing in a direction of what we can understand. And the idea is that the reality exceeds that, right? The reality exceeds all that we could even imagine. And I think it, if it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor only in this sense that it's an arrow, again, pointing to a trajectory of something that we can understand. And the idea is the reality is even worse than what we can understand. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of the metaphor issue, says this. Now, do not begin to tell me that this is metaphorical fire. Who cares for that? If a man were to threaten to give me a metaphorical blow on the head, I should care very little about it. He would be welcome to give me as many as he pleased. (laughs) And what say the wicked? We do not care about metaphorical fires, but they are real, sir. There is a real fire in in hell, a fire exactly like that which we have on earth, and everything except this, that it will not consume, though it will torture you. Really difficult. (laughs) Really difficult. 
In the midst of the difficulty, as you continue to see some of these passages, again, the question pops up, what kind of God creates this place and what kind of God would allow men and women to experience that reality? Is that God loving? Is that God loving? Is he sadistic? Is he mean? What is he like? Um, John Wyndham says this, really going right at this very tension. He says, unending torment speaks to me of sadism, not justice. It is a doctrine which I do not know how to preach without negating the loveliness of the glory of God. It has been the emphasis of fanatics. It is a doctrine that makes the Inquisition look reasonable. It all seems like a flight from reality and common sense. And I think every single one of us can identify with what Wyndham is feeling and what he's saying. Despite the fact that we all have that tension in our stomachs, the question is, what do we do about hell? Every single one of us feels that way. Every single one of us has that that element welling up in us. And every single one of us, I think, can identify exactly what Wyndham is saying. But here's the question. What is hell like then? Is it, is, are all of these biblical passages totally to be dismissed so that we can paint a picture of hell that's completely different than what we're reading? I'm giving you guys tons of passages because I want you guys to see we're not just taking one isolated passage to talk about hell. That what we're seeing over and over again is something incredibly difficult, unending, awful. The question is, what kind of God would do that? As we think about, as we talk about the holiness of God, the justice, the righteousness of God. I think hell provides us a place where we begin to get a sense of just how just, how righteous, and how holy he is. I think the problem for many of us is we want to redraw what hell is like, is we want to redraw the future, and therefore we want to redraw God. (laughs) Not just that we commit idolatry, as we try to play a public PR spokesperson doing damage control and spending control on the reputation and the perception of God in our culture, But ultimately, we are recrafting not just a picture of the future contrary to the scriptures, but we are recrafting a picture of God that's contrary to what we see in the scriptures and therefore is idolatry. We want a God that is different than this. This kind of picture of God is one we see consistently in the Old Testament at times, but it's not one that we are as consistently sometimes see in the New Testament. In the midst of wanting to so stress the love of God, wanting to so stress the intimacy and the friendship of God, we, write, we have t-shirts where Jesus is our homeboy. Jesus is just like us. Jesus has uh, you know, got all kinds of crazy marketing going on because we want to have the sense of we can connect with him, we can understand him, he's like us. And that is absolutely true. But in much theology and much discussion and much teaching, one of the things we often do is we miss, get the emphasis wrong and the balance wrong. I think we've so emphasized the love of God that we've really weakened and deconstructed the very sense of his righteousness, his justice, and his holiness. We saw this two weeks ago. We looked at a few of the passages, but even Isaiah chapter 6 and a few passages like that, every single time men and women come into the very presence of God, they hit the deck and they are undone. Their response when they really come into the presence of God is not a full-out loving, embracing hug, but it is a move back and a move down because they realize they are not holy, they are sinful, and they are in deep, deep trouble. And I think so much of our culture today is so emphasized, even in the church, the love of God, because we want to be comfortable with God. Again, we saw this two weeks ago. We want a God we can control, a God that comes on our terms, and so love works really well for that. We want a God that we can be comfortable around. Ultimately, as you look through the passages and through the scriptures, God is not one you can be comfortable around. He loves you intimately. He loves you magnificently. But he's also holy, he's just, and he's righteous, and he's distinct from us. We are created in his image, and yet he's also unlike us in some ways. 
You don't rush into his presence. You come slowly and you come carefully. And the only reason that we can come into the presence of God is because Jesus Christ has paid a penalty and died in our place so that we even have access to him. Apart from the death of Jesus Christ, you and I have no access to God. All we have is the experience of the wrath and the anger of God. Apart from what Jesus Christ has done for us on his death on a cross, acting as our substitute to receive the wrath and the anger of God that was kindled by us, but he receives it on himself. Apart from that act, apart from seeking shelter under what Jesus has done, you and I have no shelter from the wrath and the anger of God that's going to be kindled. And one of the things I want you guys to see this morning, and we don't come at this directly because it's uncomfortable and it's difficult and it doesn't make for good Hallmark cards or good (laughs) t-shirts, That God is just and he's righteous and he's holy. And apart from coming under the shelter of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Christ that cleanses us and purifies us, if we come into the presence of God, we are in deep, deep trouble. Deep trouble. Apart from his shed blood, you and I have no opportunity for forgiveness, no opportunity for eternal life. And our experience will be that of hell. That apart from knowing Jesus Christ, that if we were to die, apart from having trusted in Jesus Christ, the scriptures are saying that what we will experience is just punishment for our sin, sin that we all have. But there's only one solution to that sin. There's only one shelter to that sin, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. And here's the deal this morning. As we think about fathers, on Father's Day, as we think about the character and the nature of God, I don't think you really grasp the magnificence of the love of God until you really grasp the sense of his justice and his righteousness. When all we talk about and all we want to grasp is the love of God and we've diminished the justice and the righteousness of God, we have a weak God. Not just a weak God, but we have a God who doesn't love that strongly. We ended this morning singing of how strong the love of God is, and I love that we ended there because ultimately I want you guys to see those in tension. So the extent that you see the justice of God and the righteousness as God is high will be the same exalted height that you will have of the love of God. If God did not have to rescue us from much, then his love is not that magnificent. It is not that large. When you really recognize his justice and his righteousness and realize the great extremity and severity of what he had to rescue us from, then you see how greatly he loved you. How greatly he loved you. If you had a friend who just pulled you right out of the street from a car that was flying by, you would know he cared for you, right? But if you had a friend who not only pulled you out of the street, but threw himself in front of that car on your behalf, you'd recognize that love even greater, wouldn't you? which is exactly what Jesus has done for us, who bowed head first into the wrath and the anger of God that was kindled, absorbing it in his death so that you would not have to experience it if you know Jesus Christ. And so where do we go this morning? In the midst of this talk, I want you guys to see that hell is an avoidable reality. And if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, then on this Father's Day, let me plead with you to consider Jesus Christ. On one level, I do want you to see his incredible love for you. On another level, though, I want you to see His love is magnificent and it is magnified when you see how just and righteous and holy he is and what he had to rescue us all from. When you really grasp that, I think of the prostitute Mary Magdalene who grasped the love of God because she knew how sinful she was. When we recraft God's character because we don't want to see the seriousness of our sin, we also really begin to miss the greatness of his love. And ultimately, I want you guys to see this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, that today is an opportunity you have to come into his presence. Ultimately, he is just and he's righteous and there's a fear that ought to be had. But ultimately, what Jesus Christ has done is he's offered himself on a cross for you is that he's embraced you and he's extended an invitation for you to have a lifelong relationship, an eternal relationship with him. Not just to avoid an 
awful reality. Not just to avoid an awful reality, but ultimately to be brought into an abundant kind of experience of life that you were ultimately designed for. That is even better than anything that you're experiencing now, but it comes not on the basis of works. Because not on the basis of what you can earn, but it comes on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. That he's offered himself to you as the best Father's Day gift that could ever be offered, right? says, hey, here I am. As a father, in a sense, as, as one extending life to you as my son or as my daughter. I love you and I care for you and I will die on your behalf. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, let me plead with you, consider him. If you have questions, come grab me, come talk to me. If you know Christ this morning, let me challenge you in, in, in three different ways. One is, if hell is as the scriptures seem to be defining it, then check your compassion for those who don't know Jesus Christ. If hell is exactly as the scriptures seem to be def- defining it and describing it as a, a just punishment of eternal torment, it's as awful as it gets then why are we not more compassionate to those who do not know Jesus Christ? Why are we not more quick to describe the great love of God, the great invitation that's been offered to avoid an awful reality? Why are we so lackadaisical? Why are we so cold-hearted? And that's myself right with you guys. Why am I so slow to go talk to neighbors? Why am I so hesitant to extend an invitation and bring up a conversation with a coworker, uh, with a classmate, with a roommate, with a family member, with a neighbor? Why are we so hesitant? Why are we so cold-hearted? It's fascinating. We had spent a week uh, in Colorado, and we came, back, we came back from Colorado this past week and had an awesome time as a family. Uh, our little girl uh, went on a hike with uh, her mom at one point, and I went on hikes with her too, all right? But one of these hikes, all right, she saw two little foxes, all right, uh, and saw a bunch of chipmunks. And so on the way back uh, on the trip, uh, we're talking to family and telling stories, and our little girl wants to jump on the phone and tell every single person she can about the foxes and the chipmunks, right? It was just instantaneous for her. And yet I think what's fascinating is as great as that story is, there's a greater story that we have to tell, and yet we are so slow to tell it. We are so hesitant to tell it. We are so unexcited to tell it. Why is that? Why do we lack such compassion for those who are so in desperate need to hear of a message of hope and of grace that we have? You know, I think it's interesting that we have all kinds of compassion for social causes like human trafficking, poverty, uh, clean water in different countries, and yet we seem to be so quick to run to those things and then so slow to run to the gospel at times, right? Why are we so quick to help in such practical ways and yet so slow to help sometimes in such profound ways in terms of speaking the very words of the gospel. Clean water only goes so far. Stopping certain evils institutionally and culturally in certain countries only goes so far apart from what the gospel can do and the message of good news that we have in Jesus Christ. That his death, his burial, his resurrection forgave us of our sins and allowed us to have an opportunity to avoid an awful, awful reality. And when we see that, it shows us how greatly God loves us. A love that we need to extend and we need to be quick to extend to those that are in our lives. Thirdly, let me say this. Share your faith. Uh, Check your compassion and then share your faith. I want to challenge you this week. Who is it you can share with? Who is it that you may not know Jesus Christ that may not have a relationship with him? And who is it you can say, hey, there's an incredible offer, an incredible opportunity you have. I wouldn't go necessarily and read a bunch of hell verses, all right? (laughs) But I think for you who know Jesus Christ and has a, a more profound sense of the future that's coming, you ought to be all the more motivated to share and to befriend and to connect and to say, hey, here's the Savior. Here's someone who I know that loves you, who cares for you, and your life will be flipped upside down if you know him.
Share your faith. And the last thing we need to say, there are a bunch of people who are sharing their faith this summer overseas on uh, four of our different mission trips. And I'd say, hey, come pray for those trips as they're taking the gospel to countries with individuals who've never heard that message before. There are a lot of opportunities people have in our city to hear the gospel. Uh, we have teams that are in East Asia, that are in North Africa, that are in Greece this summer who are getting to speak words of the gospel to people who may have never have an opportunity to hear it before. And so come join us one o'clock Wednesdays to pray for them, to have an opportunity not just to be those that are speaking the gospel in our own communities, in our own families, in our own workplaces or classes, but also praying for those that have gone places that we can't get this summer, speaking the words of the gospel to people who may have never heard it before. Come join us 1 p.m. Wednesdays at Mugwalls. Let me pray for us. Father God, we look at this topic this morning and it is not a fun one. It is not a, a morning that we get warm fuzzies and that we walk away with uh, incredible joyful feelings. Uh, and Father, I pray that you'd give us the courage though to really honestly consider the biblical passages as they are. It's so easy for us to want to write a better story. It's so easy for us in the midst of our culture and its sensitivities to want to write a story that looks different, that unfolds different. But it comes at a cost, an incredible cost. And that's to reshape your character and your nature. Father, help us to not make that mistake. And Father, I pray you give us the courage to really look at you and to consider you as you are. In the midst of our own lives, in the midst of the sins and the deals that we're wrestling with, Lord, I pray that your justice and your righteousness would come and reveal where we're falling short. That you would give us the courage to actually consider you and to be present in front of you long enough for your spirit to convict us and to challenge us and to call us away from sin. Father, for you are just and you are righteous and you are holy. And Lord, you've called us to be holy as you are holy. Father, I pray that you allow us not to live with such a diminished view of that justice and that righteousness. It's just a weak and corrupt judge who just looks the other way. Lord, I pray that you allow us to see you as you are. And I pray that it would begin to shape how we live. And that we would have compassion on those who may not know you. That we would be quick to speak forth words of hope, of peace, of joy, of certainty for the future. Father, you've entrusted us with an incredible message, which is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you allow us to be winsome messengers, winsome representatives for you, compassionate, honest, compelling. Father, may you challenge us and may you reveal even this week, Lord, may you create within us an openness and a, and a receptivity to be a representative for you in the midst of classes and workplaces and in the midst of different spheres of influence you've given us. May we not be bashful, May we not be ashamed. May we not be timid. You've given us a spirit of love, power, and discipline, Lord. And I pray that you would allow us to move forth into our spheres, into our schedules this week, armed with the gospel, ready to speak forth its, its message, its hope, its grace. And Father, I, help you, I pray you'd allow us also to see you as you are, to take down our idols, to take down our false views of who you are, and to allow, uh, allow us to see you as you have revealed yourself to be. Give us the courage to come before you even in fear, realizing who you are, that you are just, that you are righteous. And yet we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ that gives us a shelter from that wrath, that gives us access to you, that gives us peace with you. And Father, if there are any of us this morning who don't know you, Lord, I pray that, that today could be that day, that realizing what is coming in the future would really be a motivation to really consider who you are. Not just that you're just and righteous, but that you're loving that you've extended an absolutely free gift, an absolutely free invitation to escape that wrath and to experience something even greater, not just in the future, but right now. That you redefine us, that you reshape us, that you transform us, that you give us an experience of life like it was designed to be, not just in the future, but even now. Father, we love you and we thank you. 
as the perfect father of grace and of truth, of love and of righteousness, of holiness and of mercy. Father, I pray you help us to hold those attributes in tension and in balance. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right, guys, it's great to see y'all this morning. See you guys next Sunday. and We'll see you guys at small groups Thursday night. Love you guys. See you guys next week.